My name is Georgia Kelly Backer and I'm live from the 2017 CDAA National Conference. I'm sitting down with our four keynote speakers to get an understanding of their presentations. First I'm speaking with Dr Ryan Duffy. Uh, your background is in psychology. How did you find yourself in that career to begin with? Well, when I was an undergrad, I came in as a psychology major and then I worked with David Bluestein as a research assistant when I was an undergrad. And so through working with him for three years, I, he kind of taught me what the field was. And then he was the one who really pushed me to go to graduate school. And once I did that, I really kind of got into this area of interest of studying work. And so it was really his major influence that pushed me this direction. Yes, so how does psychology and career development link in together so well? Well, you've probably heard this before, but, but this is like a famous Freud quote that he talked about, life is really about love and work. And so I think work is just this, the half of life. And so because of that, understanding what makes people happy in it is really important because we're spending more time doing it than anything else but sleep and for a lot of us, even more than sleep. So because of that, I think it's really important to look into it. Uh, you are here uh, speaking about the recently developed psychology of uh, working theory. How did research in this area come about? So my former advisor, David Bluestein, about 15 years ago started doing a lot of work in this, trying to explain the career development of people who were not privileged. And so he did a lot of kind of like narrative, qualitative work around it. And, but it was never put into a formalized theory that could be tested empirically in various populations and, and over time. And so I worked with him to kind of take his narrative components of psychology of working and using my kind of empirical mind to put those together to kind of build this larger model. So that's kind of where it came from. So how do you classify uh, decent work and how attainable do you think it is? I think in most developed countries, if you are educated, I think it's very attainable. But once you're in underdeveloped countries or you don't have higher levels of education, I think that attainability goes down. And that's primarily due to the fact that when you don't have education or you're not in a developed country, the ability to have options of stable employment are much less. And it's very often stable employment that is meeting all of the five components of decent work. So being in a position to get stable employment is probably the key and is more likely under those conditions. You've also spoken about marginal, uh, marginalization affecting people and their ability to get decent work. How much of an issue is it? Oh, it's huge, it's huge. But I think it depends on the, the level that that marginalized identity is impacting your life. And so, for example, in America, if you are, let's say, a gay or lesbian individual, if you live in like a really progressive city, you have a marginalized identity, but its impact might be much less on you than let's say you were someone with a severe disability. That your day-to-day -day impact of that marginalization is lower so in some ways, it's important for us to measure not just having the identity, but the impact of the identity on you as a person. And how are you hoping this theory will help career development practitioners? How will they put that into practice? Well, my goal is that, is that it will help them work with clients to be 
less focused on trying to find the match, which is important for people who have decent work, but if they don't have decent work yet, is to shift their focus into helping people find the decent work threshold, that that's where the energy and practice should come from, versus doing all these assessments about what's your fit, what's your interests, what's your values, all that stuff. I think that's important, but is really good after decent work is met. Uh, are there any ways that career practitioners can help their clients become less marginalized or even be perceived as less marginalized? You know, in the theory, we talk about developing this critical consciousness idea, which is that, is that if you actually understand your marginalization and you understand the way society is marginalizing you, getting a full understanding of that, it will help decrease its impact on you. So in that way, I think building those skills, that consciousness is really helpful. But the reality is, at a societal level, the marginalization is never going to go away. Or it might go away, but after a long period of time. So it's hard to eliminate it, but it might, you might be able to lessen the impact if you build that consciousness. People asked in your keynote presentations about what you do for clients that aren't proactive. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, so I think, I think the best way to help clients like that is to is to hook them up with role models in their life that are proactive, that they can learn those skills from. Because I think as a, as a counselor, you trying to teach someone those skills is not gonna have nearly the impact as if they learn them secondhand from someone close to them in their lives who is in kind of their same place, maybe experiencing the same marginalization or economic constraints, but has been successful. So trying to get them to align with those people and work with them, I think is really important. So what's next for your research? Well, our goal over the next few years is to obviously like test the whole model, but more specifically, look at how these variables relate to each other over time. So kind of tracking people longitudinally to understand what are the main parts of these, this model that boost decent work, and then also what happens when people lose decent work and how does that affect their lives in various ways. And the only way we're going to do that is by tracking people over years and getting that data when we see the fluctuations of their careers. So that's really our goal. So our conference uh, theme is around responding locally to global challenges. Why do you think that this is so relevant at the moment? I mean, it's probably a little bit cliche, but, but the, the, the loss of decent work is a global issue. But I think it's something that at a local level, we as career practitioners can work with individuals in their local communities to help get to that place. So we're not going to change the structure or the global problem, but we can as practitioners focus on the individual work to help people who can overcome some of those barriers get to those places. So in my mind, the local work is the practitioner work. That was Dr. Ryan Duffy, and now I'm speaking to Dr. M. Villiers. So to start off with, what was it that drew you to career development in the first place? I started in career development in a very specialised field, which is writing jobs for government employment. And I got into that because when I joined the public service myself, I found I'd got into the wrong job and needed to get out, to get out of it very quickly. And that's when I came up against needing to know the convoluted process that's involved in applying for jobs. And so I wrote the first edition of my book, which is a very modest little volume, and it sold like the proverbial hotcakes because it was the only book on the market on the topic. And it just went from there that 
that's what led to my specialising in people working in the public sector and particularly government development. Yep. And during your keynote, you spoke about the rules that each of us hold. Uh, how can these negatively or positively impact our careers? We all carry around in our heads rules about how things should be done. So an example in our profession is that of resumes. And you can meet people who specialise in resumes who will declare quite categorically that their way is the way to do it. And yet you speak to somebody else and they'll say, no, no, that's not the way you do it, it's another way. So it is useful to have diverse views about how to do our practice. And it's also a matter of being aware, well, how rigidly do I stick to that? And does it apply in all circumstances? You spoke about changing perceptions of skills, for example, that soft skills aren't masculine. How important is it for us to change this perception for the future world of work? I think the broader issue is that there are very few jobs that don't actually require the use of social skills, meaning communication and interpersonal skills, while a proportion of how much you use those skills will vary from job to job. It's also a life skill and it's also an, a skill that helps you remain employable. And so it's, it's a matter of ensuring that everybody appreciates that this is a meta skill, if you like, that everybody needs to have. Yeah. And could you go into the idea of um, sense makers a little bit more for me? Yes, sense makers. We are all sense makers in that we are making sense of our world and interpreting what's going on, particularly in relation to other people. And so this has an impact on us on our day-to-day -day lives as well as in our professional practice where we are making sense of what our clients' needs are, what their interests are, um, their whole context of, of their life. It has an impact on a whole range of elements of our practice. The perception of the of the future of work is pretty grim at the moment. Uh, how do you think career practitioners can best guide their clients through this period of change? The two points that I made in my conference presentation about fostering hope were about realism and possibility. So hope comes, I think, from those, from those two areas. So uninformed optimism is not going to cut it. It's about being realistic about what's going on in the world and also helping someone to appreciate the possibilities that are out there both in terms of who they are and what the potential for um, exploring a range of, of occupations is. So you mentioned earlier that you are a published author. What have been the impacts of this on your career? Being a published author has been critical. So um, having published that book some decades ago and having taken it through to its sixth edition, it has been a fundamental core of my business and, and in terms of building my reputation and getting known in the marketplace. You've just heard from Dr Anne Billiers. Now I'm sitting here with Dr Peter McElveen. How did you go from being an advocate of postmodernism to somewhat of an opponent? I wouldn't describe myself as an opponent of postmodernism. I would describe myself as a critic of it. Um, when I first started doing some research in the field of career development, I found that the 
postmodern thinkers, particularly Michel Foucault, uh, were extremely helpful in trying to arrive at an understanding of how our particular theories and practices in the field change the way we do our practices. And in some respects, how, how to help us understand why we do our practices. And I think it's still extremely useful from that point of view. So I wouldn't say I've, I've, I've abandoned that postmodern vision of unpacking discourse and, and how we do our practices. What I've turned against is the postmodern critique, which produces nothing in reply. We've been listening to postmodern scholarship for some time, and really I haven't seen anything overly productive come back from them. It's one thing to be a critic, that's all good, but eventually you have to produce something um, that is practically useful for the field. In your keynote, you spoke about the impacts of unemployment, but also the impacts of ill-fitting employment. Can you explain to me the impacts that these have on somebody? Unemployment is a problem of health proportions. It's a public health problem. The evidence that unemployment leads to poor physical health, poor mental health, poor cognitive development within children is, is fairly solid. I mean, we can spend the next few years confirming all of that stuff, but the evidence at the moment from the epidemiologist is convincing. And we know in our own research field, you know, psychology and sociology, education, and in the practical field of career development, unemployment isn't good for you. <laughs> it, it doesn't feel good. but I think what we have to think about in terms of where we go with it as researchers and practitioners is how can we actually help governments, employers and workers themselves understand the negative effects of unemployment. But more than that, I think we have to consider this notion of decent work in particular because, as I said, any job is not necessarily a good thing. Any job may... You know, diminish a person's sense of self-esteem, may diminish their sense of self-efficacy, it may diminish their capacity to engage in networking with other resources who are out there. So if a person is working in a job that's consuming all of their mental and social resources, they may very well get stuck. So rather than having opportunities to look out beyond for other opportunities that might lift them up into a different type of work or perhaps even into a different income bracket. And what makes a good work environment and are Australian employers achieving this? I think by and large Australia does pretty well in international standards when it comes to decent work. That doesn't mean Australia is perfect as a, as a nation of workers and employees and organisations, private and public. We still have high levels of aggression and violence within workplaces not just physical aggression and violence, there's psychological violence. The, the level of psychological distress caused in Australian workplaces is quite extraordinary. So we don't have it perfect. But I think where we do get it right in Australia is that we have an understanding of respecting another person's capacity to do their job well. You spoke about self-efficacy. How can you help a client that doesn't have this self-belief? One of the uh, interesting things that we know about self-efficacy is that over the decades of research into it, we know what are the sources of self-efficacy. So you can break the sources down into four particular parts. But the, 
the three that we can focus on as career practitioners is observational learning, persuasion, and experience. When you think about career counselling or career education, in and of itself, that's a form of persuasion. You're able to generate people's thoughts about themselves within dialogue with themselves or with other people with where they become actually slightly more convinced that they are more efficacious. The other one is observe, observing other people. So if you've got peers at your level of skill and interest, and if you observe your peers and you go to yourself, well, you know, if he can do it, I can do it. It's that sort of thinking. So when we think about mentoring and observational learning at the peer level, it's gotta be at that level where people feel, hey, yeah, that one can do it, so can I. And the other one, of course, is actual positive learning experiences. And finally, you spoke about career development practitioners needing to use evidence better. How can they do this? Evidence-based practice is not uncommon anymore. And I think for any profession that aims to serve people, you've got to have your head in the evidence. Now, I understand that career practitioners may not necessarily be researchers. They don't have to be researchers. What they have to be are consumers of research to know where to get it from, to know how to make sense of it, and to know how to put it into action. Yet it's always good when you've got you know, researchers in the field who can help you do that. But so much good quality research is now at people's uh, fingertips. If you use, you know, say the search engine Google Scholar, it's all there. Thank you, Dr. Peter McElveen. Now I'm sitting here with former Paralympian, Marika Yonkers not only had an interesting career, but you've also worked in career uh, development. Can you tell me about your time working in the industry? I worked in a disability employment service on a program to specifically designed at empowering graduates from universities into the workforce. And the kind of real impetus of that was to find not just a job, a career and something that was meaningful because while there might be outcomes associated for disability employment agencies in terms of 12 weeks in employment or 24 weeks in employment and people out of the unemployment statistics or perhaps underemployed, is it quality employment when a university graduate is serving in a cafeteria or working at McDonald's and is that really meeting the needs of us as a society? Are we really doing the best that we can? Um, and it was really fascinating when I started in that role, I thought, that I would need to upskill the graduates and that was where my focus would be. And it didn't take very long to find out I had a huge number of very motivated, very talented, enthusiastic people. And the problem was on the other end about educating the employers that it's actually less sick days taken, higher staff retention, often living with a disability has given somebody really specific skills. In my case, using a wheelchair and needing to apply for a lot of equipment and such things. I am an absolute ninja at government paperwork and dealing with it and I am the go-to guru on that and I have incredible patience because a lot of things tend to go right wrong or be very difficult to logistically organise. You spoke about oh, you've, your very extensive athletic career. What did you used to do to settle your nerves I guess or, or the adrenaline when you were about to start a race? So lots of people assume that possibly before a race I was nervous and I think that you have a choice. Every bit of me that I can feel is very aware that it's alive right before a race, but you can choose that to use that as excitement and invigorating or fear and shut down. So I learned to 
be excited by being in that space, get comfortable with being uncomfortable because the most exciting things happen outside your comfort zone. Many of our uh, career practitioners probably don't have um, a deep understanding of living with a disability. I guess what can they do in their own practices to be of most benefit to their clients with disabilities? So this might sound um, counterintuitive, but people with disabilities live with that disability and are actually the best expert on their own situation and what they need and are most likely to be able to tell you what help they need. Even when I worked in, uh, worked in an employment service with people who had disabilities, I never assumed myself to be the expert because every person and their disability and how they interrelate with that disability, their support networks and their environment is different. So you have a different set of circumstances. So the best way you can help is begin to ask the questions, understand and ask the person in how would we problem solve this? And that leads into my final question. In your keynote, you spoke a lot about self-leadership and you're an incredibly positive person. I guess, what, what's your secret? And can you tell me about this self-leadership concept? So um, self-leadership and heart goals are actually my own intellectual property that I came up with because I sat down upon the time that I retired from sport and reflected on my life and what I'd done and the fact that I was constantly asked the question, why are you different? Why are you so positive? Why are you always smiling? When, for example, I have spent a year of my life laying in bed with recovering from pressure sores. I've nearly died twice in the past year from the most insane superbug. I do use a wheelchair for mobility, which I don't see as a disadvantage or a problem, but other people seem to think is a disability. Uh, I think my disability is I can't read roadmaps because the definition of disability is a thing that prevents you from leading a normal life and getting severely lost definitely impedes on my capacity to not lead a normal life, um, much more than sitting down while I'm getting lost, I assure you. Um, but where did this positive come from? I started to break it down backwards. I'm like, okay, why am I different? What is it about me? A girl who's using a wheelchair, came from a lower socioeconomic family, who both sides of my family are migrants to Australia from Holland. So if you look at it statistically and objectively, the way we're trained to when we do careers advice, I fit into so many categories of marginalized and diverse, and I shouldn't have achieved what I did. So I did break down backwards, why? And I came up with this concept of self-leadership, which is really about learning to get the best out of yourself, how you perform in every given situation and how you can, instead of um, having false starts, essentially, which we sometimes have in sport, um, have restarts where you reframe and you start again, get the best out of yourself. And the other thing I really realized I was doing was setting heart goals, not just smart goals. And now heart goal, I define as something where you wake up in the morning and it's something that you just would be so excited to get out of bed and do when you're passionate about, and you would do it all day, every day, even if no one paid you for. That's the thing that gives you joy and meaning and satisfaction in life. And whether that comes through our paid employment or through something else, if we've sat down and maybe written down a list of 100 things we wanna do in our lifetime, We've really connected with all the different spheres of our life. What will meet, what does fulfillment look like to us? We're much more open to grabbing opportunities or creating our own luck and opportunities to make those happen. 
That was Marika Yonkers, and thank you for the four keynote presenters for speaking with me today.